0: morning morning. it's nice to be together isn't it uh for you for those of you that are over here i just made everything go out of focus we'll do that again um i'm gonna try hard to treat the camera as one set of eyes like so i'm gonna make eye contact out here and make eye contact here even though uh haley and i were just talking beforehand like the camera has a weird magnetism uh so i hopefully i don't just ignore everybody here and just stare at the camera Um, so you're one person, even though I know you're more than one. So we'll try this out. Okay. This is new for us. Um, uh, I'm going to read Luke chapter seven, our passage, and then we're going to go right into what we have for today. Starting in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, him being Jesus, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisees house and reclined at the table and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Though she learned when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed the feet, his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him, began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, so we are walking through this series still called the Year of Biblical Literacy. And uh, I just want want to read a quote from you from George Hunsberger. He said, The Bible is transformational only when it is welcomed as formational. Discipleship is about crawling inside the biblical story and taking up residence there. And in the process, the biblical story crawls up inside of us and takes residence there. This is really, really important for us to understand. The Bible is only transformational when it's viewed as formational. If we read the Bible uh, simply to gain information or to gain theological clarity, we're missing the point of the Word of God. The Word of God is meant to crawl up inside of us and take residence there. And the only way that happens is if we are willing to crawl up inside of it and take residence there, which is what we're attempting to do uh, over the course of this year. And the reason we would even desire to do this is that we are or claim to be disciples of Jesus. Now, if you remember a few weeks back, we talked about this idea. When we talked about Jesus as rabbi, we talked about what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, When Jesus announced his... uh, his presence, his uh, his coming of age, as it were, uh, in his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, he said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so right there, he said he kind of announced his coming onto the scene. And so uh, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, then we become apprentices. Remember, we talked about this idea of being a, an apprentice and what that meant Uh, An apprentice followed uh, their rabbi around. They followed their uh, teacher around and mirrored everything that he did. He sat at his feet. They were covered with the dust of his feet, uh, the scriptures tell us. And so that's what it means to be a disciple, to be an apprentice. So we're crawling up inside the biblical story so that it might crawl up inside of us, so that it might form us, that it might change us, that it might might transform us from the inside out. Now. We just read a story uh, and if we immerse ourselves in Jewish culture, if we uh, educate ourselves on what this story might look like in its context, it's both um, both amazing and shocking, right? This was a completely foreign scene uh, to the Jewish people to have this type of woman in this person's house doing what she's doing and receiving the response that she's receiving. It's completely unheard of. But here's the point of the story, right? The point of the story is, well, twofold. Number one, Jesus' response to her. Number one. And number two, the contrast between her and the Pharisee. The unbelievable contrast between the sinful woman and the religious elite. Right? The people that should have recognized Jesus for who he was, the Pharisees, and the sinful woman who should have recognized Jesus for who he was. And according to their uh system their theological and religious system should have known better should have known to stay away so we have a compare and contrast here but look at what he says in verse 44 do you see this woman i entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet so it was customary when you walked into someone's house for a meal that your feet would be washed so you didn't wash my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair you gave me no kiss a kiss of brotherly love. You gave me no kiss, but the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet, which she just washed after I walked all day barefoot. You did not anoint my head with oil, a sign of, uh, of honor and recognition of who he was. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now. So the Gospels give us this view, and what we're looking at in this little mini-series is the character of Christ. That's what the Gospels are doing. They're giving us a picture of who Jesus was, and what he did, and how he interacted with humanity. So what we see so often, specifically in the Gospels, is these comp- comparisons and these contrasts the, certain people were responding to jesus in correct ways and certain people re- responding to jesus in incorrect ways and so we can see jesus's response to people and their responses to him and then we can evaluate how uh, how jesus responds to us and how then we should respond to him right we see in this story things we should model both on her side We should model repentance and humility, but what we're going to focus on today is Jesus' response to her. Now, um, that's a high bar, right? (laughs) I mean, we're setting a high bar. How do we respond to the world around us as Jesus did? Okay, none of us are Jesus, but this is part of the problem, or not part of the problem, but part of the, the process of being a disciple. We watch our teacher, and we try our best to emulate him. Now, this is different than... Our modern idea of being an apprentice, because if I'm going to be an apprentice of an electrician, it was it four years. Anybody Mac four years, two years in two years, I become an electrician. Okay, Uh, I'm not going to become Jesus after I follow him for two years. I'm 41. I've been following Jesus seriously um, for over 20, 25 years. And um, I'm still not Jesus. Uh, uh, the, the, the apprenticeship that we have in Jesus is one that we only achieve after we die. So the scriptures are very clear. We are glorified uh, with him when we go to be with him. Whether he comes before we die or we die and go to be with him, that's when we receive our glorification. That's when we become like Jesus. So you're not going to become Jesus of Nazareth in two years, four years, six years, 40 years. It's not like getting a black belt. It's incremental and beautiful. We're turning corners and we're constantly seeing horizons that are out of reach. But he is there with us constantly, shepherding us, teaching us, and drawing us. So what we're going to look at today is this idea, this character of Christ as the friend of sinners. What it is and what it isn't and what it requires of us. So right before this story that we just read, there's a story of Jesus healing a centurion servant. Now, if you remember, if you've read through uh, this chapter in Luke chapter 7, you know that the centurion is a Roman. So the Romans were completely uh, hated by the Jews because they were the oppressors. And so uh, the Jewish people longed for the Messiah, who was not going to set them free from their sins because they were the Jewish people who had the law. They had no sin. They were looking for a Messiah that was going to set them free from their physical oppression from the Romans. And so Jesus, what does he do? He heals a Roman's servant. He recognizes the faith of the Roman and says, I haven't seen this faith anywhere among my own people, and I'm seeing it in a Gentile. He heals him and acknowledges his faith and actually commends him for it. Then he raises the son of a widow, touches a dead body, which would have made him ceremonially unclean. Again, completely unacceptable under the Jewish law and in the Jewish culture. Yet great fear rises up, uh, and they say that there's a great prophet among us, and word spreads everywhere and then we get this story that we read a couple weeks ago about john the baptist Uh, john the baptist is preaching preparing the way for the messiah and then what happens he gets thrown in prison right and so he's sitting in prison as jesus is ministering and he sends his disciples to jesus to ask him are you really the one Even though John was there when Jesus was, like he's the one that baptized Jesus and saw the Holy Spirit come out of heaven like a dove and heard the voice of God saying, this is my son and whom I am well pleased. All of a sudden, a few months later, John's in prison going, hey, things aren't going well for me. We need to find out if Jesus is the one or not. So he sends his disciples to Jesus. And Jesus' response in Luke 7, starting in verse 22, he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Uh, after he heals a bunch of people, he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Again, quoting the book of Isaiah. Jesus launches into this little mini-sermon about who is and isn't responding to what God is doing. And he says, you don't want John or me. So he responds to John's disciples and then turns to everybody else and preaches this sermon. And he says this in verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread. And drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man has come drink, eating and drinking. And you say look at him a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So he looks at the people and says. You didn't want John because of the way he acted. You don't want me because of the way I'm acting. The people had an agenda. They had a picture in their mind of what they wanted the Messiah to look like. And so when John came on the scene telling them to repent, they rejected him. And when Jesus came on the scene uh, uh, befriending sinners and tax collectors and hanging out with Gentiles, they rejected him. Because he didn't fit their box. He didn't fit their agenda. Now, this is, this is interesting because... Uh, When Jesus is being tested by a Pharisee and and the Pharisee asks him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. In this, the whole law can be summed up. So the Pharisees were experts at the law. The Jewish people worked so hard their entire lives to follow the law and yet they missed the point of the law. That's what Jesus is saying. The point of the law is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And they were so concerned with dotting every I, crossing every T, that they had missed the point of the law. And if we look at the Ten Commandments, even if we go back and look at the Ten Commandments through this lens, right? When Jesus says the whole law can be summed up in this, love your Lord, your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Look at the Ten Commandments through that lens. And you see it so clearly. Like everything in the Ten Commandments is about loving your neighbor, loving God and loving your neighbor. But they missed it. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he's loving everyone around him, even the Pharisees, right? The rich young ruler uh, in, in Mark chapter 10, it says that he went away sad, but Jesus loved him. Like Jesus responded to him with grace and kindness and with an invitation. He loved everyone. Luke 19 is another story. In verse 1, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore, sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And Jesus came to the place, and he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully, and when they saw it, they being the rest of the people, the Pharisees, the Jews, they grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You see that word, the same response that they had to Jesus in his response to the woman that came in and anointed his feet with oil and, and washed his feet with her tears. They called him a sinner. How dare Jesus befriend him? He is a sinner. Now, a couple things to point out here. Number one, their response to Jesus when he befriends the sinner is to put him in this category. Number two, when we talk about this idea of the poor and the sinners, right? G, uh, who was Zacchaeus? He was a chief tax collector. And it makes the point, Luke makes the very specific point. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. So, this idea of poor isn't necessarily talking about monetary uh, wealth or lack thereof, it's talking about a heart posture the poor in spirit. So what's the problem here? Why is the con- what's this concern about Jesus being friends with? Why do they care who he's friends with? Okay, it's not the, this idea that Jesus, son of Joseph, is friends with these people. It's about the fact that Jesus, uh, rock star new rabbi, who's doing all these amazing miracles and claiming to be the son of God and claiming to be the Messiah. The problem is that he's hanging out with these people. It's not just about friendship, it's about what's being communicated in the offer of friendship. There's a big difference there. It's about what's being communicated in the offer, offer of friendship. Another quote by uh Joachim Jeremiah to understand what Jesus is doing in eating with sinners, it's important to understand that in the East, even today, to invite a man to a meal is an honor. It was an offer of peace. Trust, Brotherhood, and forgiveness, in short, sharing a table meant sharing life, thus jesus' meals with sinners are an expression of the mission and message message of Jesus. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. Sharing a meal with someone was it was an expression of. Brotherhood, honor, intimacy, love. So as we're talking about this thing, we have to, we have to think reflectively. We have to, have to think um, inwardly. What does this look like for us? We live in a completely separate culture, a completely different culture than uh, the Jewish people did in the first century. But we have to ask this question. What does it look like for us to be a friend of sinners? Jesus is extending peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness to people who by every account in everyone's mind, including theirs, did not deserve it. Back to Luke 7, verse 8. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now you and I, Okay, this idea of being an apprentice, you and I do not have the power, and hopefully we don't try to have the power, to go around and tell people that their sins are forgiven, right? But we can withhold judgment. We can love people as people who are created in the image of God without judgment of who they are or what they've done. Right? The practical application here for us is to love people despite what they've done which is what the Pharisees and the Jewish people were unwilling to do. Their, their religious um, culture had almost created a uh, a sect system where they um, had levels of holiness, and the, your level of acceptance was determined by your level of holiness. And so when Jesus goes to the unholy, the people that were on the outside of both religious and um, social systems he went to those people and he was questioned by the people that were in the center because everything else that he was doing and everything that was preaching put him in that center group in the highest group and yet he was going to the people on the outside jesus isn't just collecting friends okay we can't miss this everything he does has a redemptive purpose this isn't just about friendship. It starts with friendship. It doesn't, it doesn't end there, though. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and, teach, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in his tax booth and said to him, Follow me. We know Levi as Matthew, who wrote the first gospel. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, he goes to Matthew's house. And Matthew was a tax collector, right? Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many, for there were many who were followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're confused. Why is he doing this? He is a rabbi. He is a teacher. What is he doing? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinners. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying that those that are the religious elite don't need a Messiah? What he's saying is that you think that you're righteous. You think that you have everything together. You are not willing to see what I have to offer. I came to the people who are willing to recognize what it is that I'm bringing and who it is that I come from and who it is that I am. No better passage um, illustrates this more than John chapter 3. Jesus has the nighttime conversation with a a Pharisee named Nicodemus. In verse 2, Rabbi says, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So he just says it outright. We know that you have come from God because nobody can do what you're doing that hasn't come from God. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So what Jesus is saying here, everybody's born of the flesh, right? If you're alive, you've been born of the flesh. But Jesus is saying you must be born twice. You're born of the flesh. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born also of the Spirit. Do not marvel at what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, You are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How many of us uh, know this verse but have never really uh, connected this verse with this conversation in its context? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Why was Jesus the friend of sinners? Because God loves sinners. Okay, this is what was so backwards about their religious culture, right? They were thinking that that God only loved the righteous. And Jesus comes and says, no, God loves sinners. That's why I'm here. So if, you, so if you and I are going to be disciples of Jesus and strive to be like Jesus, we must be friends of sinners. But this gets tricky. This gets tricky for several reasons. Number one, it, go, has, it has to go beyond friendship. We all are friends with uh, people that don't love Jesus, with people who are lost, with people who are living in the darkness. But does it go beyond friendship? Is there a redemptive purpose to our relationships. Not that people become projects or we have an agenda, right? But uh, because this is part of true friendship, even amongst ourselves, right? Our friendship has a redemptive purpose. I love you, not just because I love you and I, we get along, but because uh, there is something deeper about us through the love and the grace of Jesus that draws our friendship into something greater than just physical human friendship. What are the people of God supposed to represent to the world? 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the of, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, we see this theme uh, constantly in the New Testament. Darkness and light. Darkness and light. One of my favorite uh, John Mark McMillan songs um, is called The Edge of Darkness. And he sings about this idea that we live on the edge of a darkness. We live kind of uh, on the edge of a dark world, but also experiencing the light of God. If you and I are to be like Jesus and befriend sinners, our goal must be redemptive. We cannot be satisfied with just hanging out with people who we have things in common with. It's easy for me to be a friend of someone who loves hunting or loves fishing or loves sports because I love those things and we can hang out and we can talk about those things and we can take part in those things and and we can be friends. But am I willing to take that relationship somewhere deeper? Am I willing to have a redemptive purpose in those friendships or am I just enjoying something and enjoying someone who enjoys the same thing that I do? We have to see our friendships through this lens if we're going to follow Jesus and being the friend of sinners. The truth is we have no idea who God will save, who God will make alive. Who are these sinners? If we're going to be the friend of sinners, we have to to know who sinners are, right? (laughs) We have to know who the sinners are. The simple answer is it's us. It's us. It's humanity. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what does it mean to be righteous? If if the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and then he goes down through this list of what unrighteousness looks like, which, by the way, describes all of us multiple times, right? And then he says, he says it outright, and such were some of you. Like this, he's talking about us. But... You were washed and sanctified and justified. How? By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who loved sinners. Who was the friend of sinners. Who came for sinners. Who died for sinners. And it is a crying shame that the church has developed a reputation for self-righteousness. We have developed a reputation for self-righteousness. Paul says we're all broken, messed up. He calls himself unworthy and the chief of sinners while he pens two-thirds of the New Testament of what we call the Bible. Friend of sinners. No self-righteousness whatsoever. And our constant pushback on this idea, right? When we talk about the church has developed this reputation for self-righteousness, most of us respond with, well, I'm not self-righteous. I'm not like that. That's the church. That's other churches. That's not grace. That's other people. That's other churches. That's that other church on the other side of town. That's that, right? But if we're willing, could we just sit in that for a minute? Like, let's go back to Daniel chapter 9. As Daniel sits and confesses the sins of his ancestors so that him and the people living with him might be forgiven for the sins that were committed 100, 200, 300 years before he was even born. Could we, as the church, confess the sins of the church collectively? instead of just saying, I'm not guilty of that? Which, by the way, we probably are. A sinner in church, aren't we all? But do sinners know that, right? Do people that are living in darkness view the church and go, man, there's something about that place. They come into this place and go, whoa, these people are all broken like me. Or do they come in and see a bunch of people put together really well on a sunday morning are making sure that their kids are really well behaved and making sure that they talk just the right way because we're at church people right we all make the list multiple times we are not the, we are not the healthy we are the sick and what makes us uh, what makes us disciples of jesus is we're willing to say i'm sick and I need healing. But then comes the biggest butt in the Bible. Or the biggest butt in the world. See, we're at church. We're not talking like we're at church. Okay? Ephesians chapter 2. But God. Okay? Now, nah, see, I took something crude and made it spiritual. I threw you off and then I brought it back. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Okay? You were sick. Not only were you sick, but you were dead. Dead. In complete darkness, unable to find the light. What does Jesus do? But God being rich in mercy because of, why was he rich in mercy? Because he loved sinners. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You were the person that did not deserve it. I was the person that did not deserve it. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Not were you only made alive, not only were you healed, but you were given a place to receive honor and glory forever and ever so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us forever. This ought to put us in a posture of humility. But for some reason, we go to church for a certain amount of time, something about uh, Christians gathering with Christians, we develop this idea, well, I know why. It's because we're human. We look at the world around us and we say, they're just trying to crawl on top of each other. Everybody just wants to be right. And it's just like this popularity contest. And if we're really honest, we look around the church and we see the same thing, but just with different language. Right? Instead of bragging about how many girls we slept with, we brag about how often we read our Bibles or how, many, how often we go to church or how much money we give. And we, we have the same, like, I'm going to religiously build myself up In holiness, just like the Pharisees. And we develop a culture that sinners walk into and want no part of because they feel judged and ostracized, whether you say it or not. To be a friend of sinners means our posture is to be one of the people in the dark pointing towards the light. So here's the flip of this, okay? Because we can't go to the other extreme. The idea then becomes, Jesus was a friend of sinners. And then we get this picture in our mind of Jesus shaking up a champagne bottle like a scene from The Hangover, right? Jesus was partying. He was hanging out. He was making water into wine for a bunch of drunk people so that the party could go on deep into the night, which is also not the case, obviously. Jesus' friendships, everything he did had a purpose, and it was a redemptive, holy purpose. Was taking, he went into the darkness, was friends of people in the darkness so that he might bring them into the light. And our job is to go into the darkness, to exist in the darkness, and constantly point people to the light, which is Jesus. Not a wink at sin. Not an excusing of sin. So who are the sinners in our day? Right, Because if we're honest, like... um, the Pharisees weren't looking at, like, the religious elite weren't looking at the leper colonies. Goes, oh, like, oh, yeah, those sinners, they're living it up over there. I want to be like them. Or the poor outcast, the blind and the sick, right? So it looks different in our day because we don't live in a, um, we, or we don't live in a theocracy. Um, and we don't live in a uh, mass, re- uh, like, one religion society where we're all worshiping the same God and having the same standard of holiness, so it's up to each one of us to find the people around us who, the, who need the love and the light of Jesus. Who are we going to be friends with? Christians, the ones who love to get in with the dirt and with the poor and the sick and the sinners. Is that our reputation? It should be. I'm going to go out of a limb here, but I think that being the friend of sinners starts with friendship. I can't be the friends of sinners if I'm not willing to be friends. Right? So if there are people that you know, people at your work, right? Every one of us knows what this is like. I go to work and I'm friends with a certain number of people. There are these people in my crowd or in my group, whether it's in my neighborhood, whether it's at work, whether it's in my family, whether it was at school, right? We have our crowd. Ask yourself why. Why I'm friends with the people I'm friends with and why I'm not not willing to be friends with people I'm not friends with. These are important questions for us to ask. If we want to be friends of sinners, we have to ask these questions. Perhaps we struggle with having compassion for the lost. Dude, when we look at the lost, do we see them as lost? Does our heart break? as Jesus' heart broke, as the rich young ruler walks away in Mark chapter 10? Do we have that response when people reject Jesus? Do we have that response when we see people living in the darkness, completely content to live in the darkness, and perhaps not knowing that there is a light that exists outside of that darkness? Or are we just really busy trying to be good Christians? Because that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to be good Jews. They were trying to follow God in the way that they knew how. But they were so, so obsessed with doing the right thing that they forgot the point. Have we forgot the point? We're not, we have not been put here in this church. We have not been put here in this town, in this community to be good Christians. We have been put here, why? To proclaim the good news of Jesus, to be the friend of sinners. Are we willing? I'm going to close with 1 Peter chapter 1. Hopefully this reminds us. Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is what we should look like this is our, should be our attitude towards what has been done for us and that should overflow. Remember the woman at the well last week when Jesus described to her that, that, that she would drink this water, it would quench her thirst, and then it would become a spring that would bubble out. And what we saw in her, she received the water, she received that forgiveness, and then what did she do? She ran into town and that water bubbled over to everyone else who then came out and received that same water from Jesus. This is what it means to be the friend of sinners, to have the the water, the living water of Jesus bubble over in our lives so that other people see it and want it and receive it. May you and I live this out as disciples of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, as followers of Jesus. May we seek to live as he lived, imperfectly, relying on his spirit at all times and all things, and be the friend of sinners. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our faith, that you would pierce our hearts to repentance. That Father, we would be convicted of just trying to be good enough when the way that we were saved does not ask for that. God, I pray that we would de- drink deeply of your living water, that that would be the reason that we would that we would go to prayer, that we would go to your word. Not, to, not to, to mark off checklists, Father, but to drink deeply of your living water so that we might be changed, that we would crawl up inside of your story so that your story might crawl up inside of us. That it would take residence in our heart that your truth and your love would live inside of us and would, would bubble over inside of us for others to see. And Father, give us eyes to see the lost, that we would seek them out as you did, as you continue to do, and as you desire to do through us. Make us the friend of sinners, Jesus, as you were. We love you. We pray all these things in your name, amen.